Dr. Renee Alsaraf made it her life's purpose to help animals and their families navigate the C word, cancer. But everything changed when doctor became patient. Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. Today, we are talking to Dr. Renee Alsaraf, and I have to say, it is a discussion that has moved and struck me in such a way long after our conversation was recorded. I'm really excited to share it with you because it is an intimate conversation about cancer. As a veterinary oncologist, when Dr. Renee Alsaraf was diagnosed with cancer, she thought she knew what she was in for. After all, human cancers and dog cancers are pretty similar. She has intimate knowledge of the disease and the treatment protocols. Boy, was she in for a surprise when she went to her own oncologist. It turns out that there are things Dr. Alsaraf does for her canine patients that human oncologists might want to incorporate into their practice. And some things that she discovered that she has now incorporated into how she practices medicine. Now cancer-free, Dr. Alsaraf gets to help her animal clients from her own experience. Her memoir about this extraordinary journey was just published. It's called Sit, Stay, Heal. Dr. Renee Alsaraf, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh my goodness, thank you for having me. So I was telling you before we started, I actually have read your book and I really, really enjoy it. I think it's a phenomenal book. And, you know, we talk a lot about cancer on various shows and Dog Podcast Network. And it's something that is steeped into my life, unfortunately, for a very long time. And your journey of being a veterinary oncologist who has had cancer is a pretty extraordinary one. And then you were able to weave in your own personal journey with all the patients or, or some of the patients, including a very special one who we'll talk about. It's just a really touching, powerful book that I highly recommend. But for those who don't know much about cancer, what is the difference between dog cancer and human cancer? First of all, Jim, thank you so much for your kind words. I, it, they mean so much, truly. There isn't much difference between dog cancer and human cancer. All the different cancers that people get in general are all the same cancers that dogs get. Most of the same drugs that are used in human cancer are the exact same ones that are used in veterinary medicine to treat dogs. Sometimes it's just a difference of side effects or prognosis, but otherwise it's pretty much the same. There are actually even some cancers that are almost identical in people and dogs. One is osteosarcoma. They actually did a study where they took microscopic slides, right? So pathology specimens of a person's bone with osteosarcoma mm -hmm. and a dog's bone with osteosarcoma. And both human and veterinary pathologists in general, could not tell if one belonged to a human or if one belonged to a dog. Really? Truly. And osteosarcoma is, we're not going to get too deep into dog cancer because we have a whole show about that called Dog Cancer Answers, but osteosarcoma is kind of a rare human cancer. It's mainly in children and it's legs, and it's what you often see associated with uh, tripods because you surgically remove it. But you're not that kind of oncologist. You're not that kind of surgeon. You are a very, first of all, 
Just for those who don't know, there are over 6 million dogs diagnosed every year in the United States with cancer. And to treat all that, we have a legion of veterinary oncologists. How many are there? Oh my gosh, maybe 450 of us? Exactly. Yeah. And all of North America, that includes Canada too, I think. Yes. So it's like yep. a really, really small elite group. And of that elite group, doctor, you're in your own specialty. So within the field of oncology, you are a radiation oncologist, right? I am a medical oncologist who has also done training in radiation therapy. Okay, so you do the whole spectrum. I do the whole spectrum. I am not a board-certified radiation oncologist. That is a whole separate college. Okay. But it is a little bit unusual to have both training, if you will. Okay. So you kind of understand this cancer thing, and you've been doing this for a number of years. In fact, I understand that at one point you were the only oncologist in Kansas City. Uh, the only oncologist in the state of Kansas. In yes. The, state, the whole state of yes. Kansas. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So you've been doing this for a while and you've seen this, this whole field, which is this American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine Oncology. That, that whole thing has grown over the years. But in the beginning, when you started, it was kind of nascent, right? So you, you were trained by some of the people who helped foundation this as a discipline within veterinary oncology. Correct. Right, okay. Yes. So you've been there for a while. And so you've been treating lots of animals over the years. And then four years ago, you find out that you have cancer. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Where were you? Oh my gosh. So it was July 3rd, 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, we were planning to have a big party for the 4th of July, 25 adults, eight kids. I had my refrigerator stocked full of food. I had made stuff ahead of time. And at 7 p.m., I get a call from my gynecologist and she called to tell me that the little polyp that they thought I had was in fact actually cancer. Um, it was in my uterus. And for someone who can talk a mile a minute and talk forever. I couldn't even utter a word. My head was just a jumble of emotions. And I remember I just sat down on the step into the kitchen and my emotions and my thoughts were just racing. And yet my head was blank all at the same time. We ended up not having that party. We canceled it. And, you know, hindsight, <laughs> using the dog as my model, hmm. We should have had that party. My dog, my boxer, would have had that party. There were all the good hamburgers and hot dogs. And to be surrounded by our loved ones and our friends would have probably been the best thing for me. But I just only wanted to have a pity party, and I couldn't see past that. I totally understand. And that dog is Newton. We'll get to Newton in a bit. So, like, did you crunch onto the floor? Or what was, like, as soon as you hang up, what was going on inside of your head? I actually said out loud, which my husband did not find humorous. I thought it was hilarious. I thought, why are we saving all this money? And then I needed to go to the mall and buy some things. Just crazy stuff, right? These are just yeah. crazy things. But then it really hit me, having to talk to my son, you know, having to face my own mortality, having to face a big battle when... That's what I've devoted my life to battling with dogs. It was really difficult. And I did my homework. I think your dad was an oncologist too. 
Yes, you did your homework. Yes, he was okay. a human oncologist. Okay, so so oncology runs deep in your family. Was he? Is he still around? Unfortunately, no. He passed away this year. I'm sorry, but he was obviously at that time there. Correct. Yeah. What was that conversation like with Dad? It was hard. You know, I think in part I wanted a dad at that moment. Mm -hmm. And he was a physician mm -hmm. in that moment. He questioned some of the treatment protocol, and that made it very difficult for me. You were the first person to ask me that question ever. And it's a good question. It's a sad answer. It's a really sad answer. And, and I, I know... I swear I know that he only meant good by it, right? And he only wanted the best for his daughter. But emotionally, I needed something different, right? I needed, I needed that unconditional love from my dog, right? Not the figures and the facts, but the wagging tail and or the hug. And how did that insight inform how you have subsequently, and we should say you are now cancer-free, right? Yep, okay. 100%. So we want it for our, this is no suspense here no. for our listeners. Uh, <laughs> you are, you are cancer-free yep. and the type of cancer you had was caught relatively early and because it was early, it was treatable, right? So I am the poster child why we all need to go get checked no matter what. Mm -hmm. Every year I would go to the gynecologist in August for whatever reason that year, I made my appointment in June. Hmm. I have no idea why. And I remember the week of that appointment, I looked at it and I said, wait, why am I going two months early? No offense to any gynecologists, but I don't want to go do that two months early. This is not my favorite. Not my favorite this is not my right? favorite visit of the not year. Fun. Yeah. Um, and I almost canceled, but I thought, oh, well, I'm already booked out of pay, you know, with out of clinics. It'll be fine. I'll just go. And I had no clinical signs. Everything was normal. I hadn't even lost a pound to my dismay. Like you wouldn't have known that there was a problem. And my gynecologist, thank God, found what she thought was a small polyp. And of course, once she biopsied it, turned out that it was a carcinoma. I had surgery, my goodness, probably a week or so later. And at the time of surgery, the surgeon found a three millimeter metastatic nodule or spread outside of my uterus. And because of that, I had 25 treatments of radiation and many months of chemotherapy. Again, thank goodness, because it saved my life, but it had already spread. Wow. Yeah. And three millimeters. Three millimeters. Uh, it's, it's a very good surgeon to have seen that, right? Seriously, the best. Yeah. So a lot of luck, perhaps the hand of fate, as we call it, uh, playing a role. But going back to that conversation with your dad and, and how that may have informed how you maybe now think differently when you talk to your clients about their patient dogs. I don't know if it changed the way that I talk to them, only mm -hmm. because I always have taken the approach of not sitting across from them, whether it be, you know, literally or figuratively, but sitting next to them, right? Mm. Sort of, in a sense, figuring out together. 
I fully believe that knowledge is power so that my job as a veterinarian is to teach or tell that pet family everything that they need to know about their dog's cancer, Mm -hmm. the biologic behavior, who gets it and why, the different treatment options, the side effects, the prognoses, and then to get to know that family, sort of in a sense to honor that family dynamic, because so much goes into that decision, Mm -hmm. whether or not to treat. And then even if you decide to treat, do you want to do, you know, treat all the way, the full gold package, midway, or just do palliative care? There is no wrong answer with any of it. I do believe that in having that knowledge and helping that family in their decision process, that it gives them, I guess, in a sense, some power, but hopefully no regrets or to minimize the regrets as much as possible. Whereas in human medicine, when I go to the doctor or when anyone goes to the doctor, you're given one treatment protocol to follow, which we often do blindly. And I think I know at least I felt helpless in that. I'm just going to be the little sheep that does what they say. So you, with with your understanding of the chemo drugs and the radiation protocols and everything, were spoken to by your oncology team, your human oncology team. It's always weird to say that. Like, well, you, by your doctors, by your physicians, as if you didn't have that background or that understanding to be more involved in the treatment decisions? Yes and no. So I was the annoying patient who would ask (laughs) the harder questions, or I wanted to know, you know, I asked my medical oncologist, what's the nadir of leukopenia for my, for for this chemo drug, which is the time at which my white count could be the lowest, because I'm thinking, I don't want to go out if it's low. I'm going to sequester in the family room. I don't want to get, you know, sick if someone has a cold. And she's looking at me like, seriously, you're asking me that? But I continued to push and I really didn't care because I figured this was my battle. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if the worst thing is, is that they just thought I was a weirdo or a pain in the rear end, oh, well, I want to survive. And you must have seen that in your clients, your veterinary clients over the years. Some are, are much more you know, they are doing their research, they are consulting other veterinarians, sometimes other oncologists, they're going outside of the realm of traditional veterinary oncology and looking at things like supplements and herbs and Chinese medicine and all sorts of things. Did your own journey change any of your thinking about your receptivity to people who are doing all of that for their dogs? It did not, only because I I don't, I'm not trained in that Eastern medicine philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I believe that there is a place for alternative therapies. Sometimes alternative therapies are only good for a specific individual and not the masses. Mm -hmm. But once studies have been done and those alternative therapies are shown to actually have promise or efficacy for the masses, then they're no longer alternative, right? Then they're the standard of care or part of the standard of care. Mm -hmm. So I've always embraced all of that. I didn't pursue any alternative therapies at the time because I also believe in giving the standard of care a really good chance. Okay. If things weren't working, then, you know, no holds barred. I'm going to try whatever it takes. You can do whatever it takes. Any supplements? Did you take any supplements yourself? I did not, but I did do things to help 
with the chemotherapy side effects. Silly things that you would never put, you know, two and two together. And I often got this information from not my physicians and nurses, but from the waiting room, Mm, right? Like what? Well, like in the book or in any veterinary clinic, right? You go in and often the dogs want to sniff each other or you sit kind of next to someone and you start talking. And I noticed with my medical oncology patients that often the same people come back on the same days and it becomes their own support system. In the human waiting, in the you know human medicine waiting room, everyone just kept to themselves. Nobody wanted to talk, but I wanted to talk because I wanted to learn from them. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I experienced, as many people do with the type of chemo I had, were severe bone pain to the point of I would just only want to lay on the sofa. I might actually cry a little bit. It was it was really bad. Embarrassment goes out the window, or pride goes out the window. I'd, I would ask a girlfriend maybe that wasn't even that close of a friend to come over and rub my legs mm-hmm. when my son was at school or my husband was was at work. I found out that Claritin is a medication that if you take it religiously, greatly reduced my bone pain. Hmm. I didn't find out about that through my physicians. I always checked to make sure and then I'd get that, oh yeah, that can help. And I'm thinking... <laughs> Well, why didn't you tell Oops. me? We, we forgot to mention that. <laughs> yes. You can go to CVS. Correct. And, Correct. I was yeah. uh, heck bent on not losing my hair. Mm-hmm. And so I wore a cold cap. But in addition, one of the things that the chemotherapy can do is it can cause like a stocking and glove effect. So you can get tingly numbness in your hands, your fingers, and your feet. It can make it difficult to button buttons, put an earring in. People sometimes stumble because of... They can't really feel their feet or their toes. And I was talking to another woman, and she had had this chemotherapy prior. They wrapped ice bags around her hands, similar to the cold cap on her head. So Mm -hmm. I made them do that when I was getting chemotherapy. And for eight and a half hours, I sat there with ice packs on the front and back of my hands and feet. They'd have to change them periodically, right, because they defrost and kind of melt. And I froze. But what it did is vasoconstrict that area so the chemotherapy didn't affect it. And I did it because, A, I didn't want side effects, but B, I have to give chemotherapy to dogs and cats. And sometimes, you know, it's a it's a sick, dehydrated patient who's maybe a little chihuahua who has little veins. I can't not have good use of my hands. So things like that really helped. And when you were when you were requesting these ice mittens or whatever, yeah, uh, ice bags, ice bags for your, for your hands, what did the oncology nurses text think? What did they say? So the first time they looked at me like I was crazy, which yeah. I thought was going to happen. So I had a little cooler with me, and I brought my own darn <laughs> ice bags, my own. right? I got an igloo. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think they like that because they're no, no, oh no, we'll do it, right? And then they had them surprisingly, <laughs> and they were yeah. able to do that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So there are some statistics that I've read years ago that human oncologists, when they get cancer, are 80% likely to start doing things they would have never told their patients to do. Uh, huh. Anything other than like ice bags or things like that, that's just, just you and me sharing. And that, that, that you did that you're like, I probably wouldn't, I wasn't told to do this, but I just know this is the right thing to do. And, wow. and it may have contributed to my well-being. 
That's interesting. Because they can't say it because it's not standard of care, but they do it. But see, that's, I think, one of the differences between veterinary medicine and human medicine. And hopefully that's illustrated in the book a bit. Because, you know, we're so fortunate that here in this country, our medicine is, you know, leaps ahead and we have great care. But I also think that the specialists are so specialized that they lose sight of the whole patient. They lose sight of the individual. And so I think we lose out on some of that. Whereas I think the veterinarian, even say a veterinary specialist who is just focused on one disease system or or body process, is still able to treat the whole patient maybe perhaps a little bit more holistically. Let's talk about our dogs for a moment. So from your perspective, how did any of this experience influence the way that you think dogs think about cancer? Well, I can tell you that they set the bar higher for me. They did. Absolutely. 100%. They, in fact, were my recovery role models. I saw how they handled it, and I wanted to be that way, right? Talk about that. How do dogs handle it generally? They live in the moment. They are completely mindful. Mm -hmm. They go in, a lot of times, not always, with their tails wagging as they enter, right? My tail was between my legs. I worried for a week, you know, how sick is sick? Will my hair fall out? What's going to happen? And then when chemotherapy is done, the dog jumps off the table and is looking for a biscuit or a treat. Whereas I'm leaving thinking, oh my goodness, it took the nurse three tries to hit my vein. What's going to happen the next time, right? So we fight to stay alive, but we waste that present moment in all of these what-ifs and these negative thoughts. And the negative thoughts are the opposite of things that we need to help us heal. And do you think that is because dogs just don't have that fear or that sense of the fact that they are sick? I don't. And I don't think that it's because dogs are brave, even though I think they're brave. But I think it is because they take everything as it comes. They don't Mm -hmm. dwell in the past or try to forecast the future. And then they move on. You know, even if you think of, you know, like a a mama dog when she has her little babies, or even a mama bear is like a bigger analogy in her cubs. And even after she, when she reprimands them, right, they growl or snarl. And then two seconds later, they're back to licking them or playing with them or being with them. There are no hard feelings. They just move on. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a much healthier, happier way to exist. They definitely live in the moment. They are models for us in so many ways. We'll get back to dogs in a minute, but let's go back to the human equivalent. One of the things that was striking in your book and is striking in general about this is a veterinary oncologist gives a prognosis. A human oncologist doesn't. Mm -hmm. Explain that. Oh my gosh, I hated that. So if you came to me or if someone else, right, we certainly don't want anyone in your family, any of your dog in your family to have to see an oncologist. If this hypothetical person. This hypothetical person comes in, I would tell them the percent chance of their dog going into remission and for how long that remission likely would be. 
you know, the percent of not doing well at all, the percent of hitting it out of the park, because that's the best way for us to make a decision. And despite me asking over and over three different doctors that I had, no one would give me a single number. I I understand from their point of view, they said it doesn't matter what the masses do, it only matters what you do. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're that 10% that does really poorly or the 20% that really soars and does great. I also understand that perhaps if the prognosis was not good, that they wouldn't want to tell a person for fear that it will bring them down. I'm someone who is tough in a battle. So whatever number they would have given me, I would have just wanted to beat it anyway, just for the sake of beating it. But it was such a striking difference. And this this kind of touches on a phenomena that is really interesting, which is this term that veterinary oncologists use a lot called median life expectancy. Explain that for a moment, and then let's tackle why you don't think they do that in the human side. So basically, if you think of it, it's just the odds or the likelihood that your dog will, say, be in a remission or survive with a good quality of life for a certain period of time. But I mean, the term median has a very specific mathematical thing, which is you line up all the numbers and literally it's not average. And I think that's so critically important. It's not average. It's just like you line up all the numbers. And so they're outliers on all sides. And then median is sort of the one right in the middle. Correct. And most data for that, right, is a bell curve. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be right at the top of that bell curve is typically the number that you will get from a veterinary oncologist. As a layperson, it seems like an incredibly useful thing because you you know there are outliers on both sides. And the likelihood is that you'll be in the middle of that bell curve or you hope for it. And then maybe then if you're a fighting person like yourself, you're like, I'm going to do better than that. But none of that median life expectancy seems to be in human oncology. Not at all. No. Did your physicians address you as doctor or just Renee? Renee, yes. Okay. Yeah, but I don't care. I understand that, but do you think, I mean, you probably mentioned oh, numerous. what you do for a vocation. Yeah, numerous so times. So do you think it's because they were like dismissive of she's a vet or they would have talked that way to a human oncologist, a colleague? I think they would have probably talked that way to a human colleague. Mm-hmm. They knew my father in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously much older, so they knew of my father. Mm-hmm. I think it was their way, I don't want to say to skirt around the issue of prognosis and numbers, but that's just something that they weren't used to discussing and maybe perhaps weren't comfortable discussing. Do you see that shifting ever in human medicine? Is that something that human medicine can learn from veterinary medicine? I do think that there are things that human medicine could learn from veterinary medicine I don't know that that is one of them, because I think there's a much bigger threat of litigation in human medicine, Mm. right? And so if someone mishears it, if someone, if you hear, well, the median disease-free interval or median remission is X, and you think, well, I'm going to be X, and then you're not, that could perhaps set up a lawsuit that is Mm -hmm. greatly unwanted and in that case, undeserved. Mm -hmm. But it's still 
litigiousness. Yes. <laughs> the litigiousness of our society. Yes. So what are some of the things that you think human oncology can learn from veterinary oncology? There's a big fear-free movement in the veterinary mm -hmm. community. Yeah, we've, we've had Marty Becker yes, on Yes, I know. Recently. I saw that one, yes. And I think if there was more hair, softness, attention given to the emotions of the people coming in as patients and their families that are caretaking them, whether it be for cancer or heart surgery or something like that, you know, it's not like we can wear pheromone collars when we go in, <laughs> but there are things that could be done, right? Perfume? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But just to have a little more kindness in that, mm -hmm. more attention would be great. You know, there were so many times that sort of starched white lab coat, their arms are just down by their side, and and I tend to be a hugger of my pet families and... I would ask my doctors if I could hug them. I uh, probably would normally hang on a little longer than they were ever wanting or accustomed to, but I know what I needed. Yeah. I try very hard as a veterinary oncologist to limit the scars that a family gets along the way, but I don't know that those were addressed or thought about during my journey. So the corollary of that question, of course, is... What can veterinary oncology learn from human oncology through your experience? On some level, we learned we learn a lot because in human oncology, they might be more advanced than us, right? In what ways? What are some of the advancements that you saw in your own odyssey that, gosh, we don't do that in my clinic? Oh, the level of genetic testing, mm. the level of targeted therapy. We're just getting into that right now in veterinary oncology. Mm -hmm. and And a lot of that has to do with research money. There's much, much, much more research money going into humans, which is all fine, right, if it's a trickle-down effect. But there are sometimes clinical trials and studies that we do in veterinary medicine that also in turn benefit human medicine. A lot of times. Right? I mean, like dogs are often the last model before it goes into humans. Correct. Yeah. Are there any other things that the you know oncologists should bring to their practice from their colleagues over in human medicine? What I found is when I first went back, it was hard for me when I had to talk to the dog parents either about a cancer in their dog that I had just been treated for, mm -hmm. or if I had to counsel them about chemotherapy drugs that I may have had. And I remember specifically one time it was a little dog and the dog had been spayed and I had just finished taking out the spay, the little stitches. Thankfully, the tumor was benign and the dog was doing great and the family left. And as they left, I noticed that my hand was resting atop my abdomen over my surgical scar. And I wasn't even aware that I was sort of self-soothing or doing that, but it really just brought it home. It just, it just made, it, made it difficult to discuss some of those things. We are going to take a break right here, but when we come back, we're going to talk about your dog, Newton, who we spoke about earlier. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpuff. 
The green, grassy, beef liver spike smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it, Everpuff, traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. It helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day, because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I wouldn't have it any other way. I want my Everpuff. It just makes me feel good. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the Everpuff you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We are back. So Dr. Al-Saraf, or I'm going to call you Dr. A, that's what your patients call you. Yes. During your own odyssey with cancer, you had someone else in your household who was dealing with cancer, your dog Newton. Yeah. Talk about a sucker punch to the gut, right? I was on the sofa recovering from chemotherapy, probably wearing the same pajamas that I had sported for four days. And I reached down to pet my dog who is lying alongside the sofa. And I felt enlarged lymph nodes. And I thought, this cannot be. I must be wrong, right? I'm an oncologist. So I just think everything is cancer. And yet I knew, I knew before we even did the tests that he had lymphoma. And he was a boxer, and boxers get a lot of cancer. They're one of the most prone breeds to to cancer, and certainly lymphoma is a big one. Talk about that when you, you like, okay, so you felt the nodules, you're like, 
you palpated. And then, you know, as a good oncologist knows, you can't tell anything just by feeling. Right. Right. Although you knew in your heart. Exactly. The mom's intuition. The mom's intuition. So what did you do next for Newton? What does an oncologist do for their own dog who they suspect may have cancer? So I first actually went to talk to my husband and my son. And my husband... And your husband's a veterinarian too. Correct. A veterinary ophthalmologist. Okay. And this wasn't our first boxer. So... It's not our first rodeo. And mm -hmm. he knew, though I was trying to choose my words carefully for our teenage son, mm -hmm. because here his mom is going through chemotherapy and, you know, heaven forbid, now his dog is going to need to as well. And even though I told our son we wouldn't know until we got the test results, we ended up all hugging and, and crying because we all just seemed to know. I had my husband drive me into the clinic and I went in with, with our dog and we did a whole battery of tests, blood work and x-rays and aspiration of the lymph nodes and abdominal ultrasound. You know, two days later, I had every bit of a uh, piece of information back. And unfortunately, of course, it was lymphoma. We treated with chemotherapy. My team was more than amazing. At that time, I had taken medical leave of absence just because for that period, I couldn't go into work. Mm -hmm. And one of my technicians actually would come to drive my dog. She drove out of her way to come and get <laughs> my dog. She drove him one way. And after work, my husband would drive by at the clinic and pick our dog up so that he could wow. stay on schedule and get his treatment because I was going into the city every single day for radiation, and then interspersed with my own chemo. It was a lot. Wow. I was going to say, what was it like to drop your dog off for chemo, but you didn't have to? Luckily, you had people there who were supporting you and Correct. providing that pickup. Right. And, and here we all have our dogs because they're incredible companions, mm -hmm. and we love them so much. And we think of this companionship as going on a hike or a walk or watching TV on the sofa together or whatever, you, I never thought that I would be going through chemotherapy with my dog simultaneously. I didn't want a companion for that. Talk a little bit about that when you guys were both recovering from chemo. Yeah. So as I wrote in the book, in the beginning, Newton just really kicked cancer's rear end. He would come home from getting chemo and raced to his dog bowl as if miraculously it had just filled with his dog food, right? He was eager. He wouldn't miss a time to go out and bark at the basketball when my son was shooting hoops <laughs> with his friend, which was great. But sort of fast forward, shoemaker's children never seemed to have shoes. And Newton did not do what the median did. He unfortunately did not do as well as the average dog or what was expected. He was on the left side of that bell curve. Exactly. Correct. And despite doing everything under the sun, he lost his battle to cancer. Um, that was another hard thing. Let's talk about that, that decision to put Newton down. You're going through cancer therapy. You're aware of so much about oncology and about the process and death. But here you have to put your dog down who has cancer? What was going through your head? So we chose to euthanize him. 
I don't believe that there's any wrong answer with whatever a family chooses, so long as a dog is always comfortable and pain-free. It's a really hard decision. I often would tell the pet families that they will have their own way to let you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we want to be very objective about it, but a lot of times we can't be. But I knew that he no longer was enjoying his life, that he didn't have a good quality of life anymore. And that is no way to be. What made it harder is that I had my son. My husband was out of town on business. And so I wanted to be there to be strong and to counsel my son and to let him feel all of his feelings. Mm. And yet I also chose to be the person to euthanize our dog. So I had to remain a little stoic because if my eyes were filled with tears, I wouldn't be able to even see the task at hand. Mm. It was incredibly heart-wrenching. I believe that my son and I felt closer, you know, after coming out of it. My dog, because he had gone and gotten chemotherapy so often, and just as a vet, right, we bring our dogs to work. So he was so used to the clinic. It was a very safe, happy space for him. Mm -hmm. So that is why we chose not to do it at home. Mm -hmm. For him, it was his other home. Yes. I hope one of the things that people get out of the book, though, is sort of an understanding, not necessarily of that process, but about that decision process. And there's sort of a list, as you saw, of things to consider. And I hope that the book lends a validation to the grieving process because it's so vital for us. You know, many times I would get people that come in and say it might be a husband, and he would say, my wife doesn't know why I'm here. She thinks I'm crazy. We should just get another dog. Or yeah. someone loses their, their dog and their coworkers don't understand why they need to take some PTO days, right? And yet it's ripping you up inside. But dogs aren't replaceable like a sunk boat. Mm -hmm. They're living, breathing things who love us unconditionally. How can we not mourn them? Even though they are one of the reasons we talked about human oncology the way it is, is because the litigiousness, the litigiousness isn't there with veterinary oncology, really, because they're considered property. And so, therefore, all these things come into play, which is really kind of fascinating and twists the brain into knots when you start to really explore it and think, huh, why is that? So... The economic side of oncology is a very real one, certainly in the veterinary space and in the human space. I'm presuming you had pretty good insurance yourself for your own treatment. And I'm assuming that you had, I think veterinarians got professional discounts, especially at your own clinic with, with your dog. But as you look at the economic costs associated with traditional treatment, what are your thoughts? What you know? Because some people just can't afford it, and some people feel are making that horrible decision because they would like to do something, but they can't afford the you know three, five, eight, ten thousand dollars that's required for standard of care for veterinary oncology. I am so glad you brought this up. So, in addition to the many dogs that are highlighted in the book, I could have chosen so many other dogs, right? That were my patients. I think to answer your question, 
one family that didn't make it in the book sort of deserves a little recognition, and it teaches a good lesson. It was a gentleman who would come in, and he had a little Shih Tzu who had lymphoma, and he decided to treat. The dog did great for a year and a half, but the gentleman never left his seat in the waiting room. Whenever I spoke to him, he looked down at the floor. He answered me in very short, little one-word soft answers, and I thought, Maybe he's just really shy. You know, it just, it is what it is. We went on. And at the end of a year and a half, his dog lost the battle. And about a month later, in the mail, I get a large manila envelope and a handwritten note of a couple of pages and photographs. And he told me that this little Shih Tzu had been his 23-year-old daughter's dog. They had gotten the dog as a therapy dog for her because she had cancer and had just passed away a few months before the little Shih Tzu was diagnosed. And they wanted to do everything possible for this dog so that the dog would hang on, right, and and be Mm -hmm. with the mom and the dad. And the lesson is that it turns out that they financially could not afford the treatments, only he never told me. So after his day job, he took the midnight shift at the local grocery store, cutting cold cuts for the next day in order to pay for the treatment. So in addition to probably being perhaps a bit of an introvert, he was also exhausted. Tell your veterinarian. In general, most of us have these bleeding hearts. We're the ones that want to splint the little broken wing off the bird who falls out of the nest, right? We will work with you to try to help and do something or come up with a different plan. The cost of veterinary care, like everything, is getting more expensive. And it's it's hard. It's hard for me as a veterinarian, right? Mm -hmm. There are some very good insurance companies out there that truly, at least currently, have the right philosophy when it comes to insurance and health care for dogs and, and other animals. That's really good advice. Yeah, I, I think um, my next dog, I'm going to do two things, starting up, get insurance and start brushing their teeth early on so they get used to the toothbrush. <laughs> What's so beautiful about this book is that you tell your own story interlaced with these wonderful stories of your clients. And that was, this, you just shared a story that didn't make it. I think it should have. I would go to your editor and say, that should have made it. But what's your favorite story that is in the book? Oh my goodness. So for those obviously that haven't read it yet, every chapter is about a different dog patient of mine and either what that family learned from the dog or what I learned. And there often are multiple lessons in every chapter. I think the overall writing theme for me is that dogs are not only incredible support, but serve as incredible guides for all of us when we go through a struggle, whether it's cancer or something else, because we all struggle. And I hope that the book gives them a front row seat to the enormous power of the human-animal bond. Some of the stories, one of them is, oh my goodness, I could really give you so many, but one of them is dogs are pack animals and they survive out in the wild because they've evolved for thousands of years genetically 
to be a part of our pack. I know my dog makes my life so much better. You know, they help farmers tend flocks, people to hunt. They help become service dogs to give independence to people. But if we even take that one step further, we as people are better as a pack, right? We're Mm. better all helping lift each other up instead of being individualistic or just out in a sense for oneself. I think that's an important lesson. Renee Alsaroff, thank you so much. That is beautiful. We really appreciate it. Sit, Stay, Heal, What Dogs Can Teach Us About Living Well, a phenomenal book. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you would like to read about Renee's journey firsthand, you can find a link to her book, Sit, Stay, Heal, in today's show notes. I highly recommend this book. It is a fantastic read. Well, that is all we have time for on today's show. I want to thank you for joining us. Please follow The Long Leash in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube and tell a friend about the show. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.